and that is our Lord and Savior. Father, as we think of those who are struggling, I think of young Tabitha Hyun, uh, pa uh, pastor at the Village Church, his daughter. We, we pray, God, for, for her as she continues to battle cancer. God, I pray that during this holiday season, as she has been having additional physical suffering, that you would encourage her spirits, that you would strengthen her, that most importantly, God, that she would look to you during this time. I pray for my brother's mother-in-law, Syrian Vanka. I pray that as she is currently going through liver failure, God, that you would be with her and the family during these difficult days. Uh, God, I pray that if uh, the uh, uh, death is, is near, I pray that she would trust you uh, in her final moments. I pray, God, that you might bring healing to her if it would please you, God. Uh, that she might have more time to be uh, salt and light in this world. I pray for those in our church who are struggling with seasonal depression during this time, going through the holidays as well as uh, shorter days and the additional feelings of depression that can arise during these times. Uh, those who struggle with a lot of anxiety, those who worry about tomorrow. God, I pray that they might look to the birds and see uh, how they neither sow nor reap, yet you uh, provide for them. And God, if you keep your eye on the sparrow, how much more will you keep your eye on us? I pray that we in our worries will trust in your kindness and in your care. Father, we pray for those who are in authority over us, that they might govern with justice. We pray for those who are uh, on mission among unreached people groups, that they might preach with passion and see fruit. And I pray for us right here at the Garden Church, that we might experience the unity that we have in Jesus Christ, that our unity might not come through sameness, uh, that our unity might not uh, uh, require sameness, but rather allow for diversity among the non-essentials uh, of, of life and of faith. But God, I pray that we would find our unity in the essential truths of Christianity, our doctrines, who Jesus is, who you are, who we are, and what you're doing in this world. And on that foundation, God, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and truth this morning with passion and joy. It's to your glory that we give you this praise it's to your glory, God, that we ask these things. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to page 12 in your handout. We're going to read uh, Joshua chapter 19, verses 19 through 24. And I ask that you will read aloud where it says, All, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. No, but we will serve the Lord. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, we have not been obedient to God's voice, to all that he has commanded of us. We have failed to obey him. So let us take this time 
to silently confess our sins to God this morning. Father, we recognize that we're sinners. And how can we, as sinners, approach you in your holiness? Our sins have separated us from you. It has caused, it has caused a great divide between us and you. Lord, we ask that you will forgive us. That if it pleases you, that you will be merciful to us this morning. Lord, we have not served you. We have not been obedient in the ways that you have uh, commanded us. We failed to obey you. But as we look to Christ, we see one who was obedient. 100% of the time. With his whole being, and we find great joy in drawing near to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because of our achievements, because of our status in this world. Take a seat. Hope you are all well this morning. As we come into this room, you know, you might come with all kinds of worries and anxieties. One of the wonderful things that God does is He meets us in our worship. As we come together, we're two or three come together, the Lord says He is present. So, my prayer, as always, is that we experience the presence of Christ uh, each and every Sunday morning. So it's good to be with you today. Uh, so thankful for the opportunity that we have uh, to gather. I'm thankful for you guys and uh, those, of course, watching through Zoom as well, our church that we have, uh, the genuine love that we have among each other. Uh, I'm thankful for the way that we are patient uh, with one another during this season of COVID, this pandemic, um, and uh, just even looking out right now, seeing you spaced out with masks on, uh, just reminds me that I'm just thankful for the fact that we're doing our best to work together. And, um, uh, and those that are uh, at home through, uh, for various reasons, uh, continue to keep them up, lifted in prayer uh, as they are unable to be with us physically. Uh, we are in a series this month of December in the book of Ruth, and so I want to ask that you would turn in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. Uh, Ruth chapter 2, if you are unfamiliar with where Ruth is at, just simply go to the table of contents, and you can find a page number for 
uh, the book of Ruth and turn to Ruth chapter 2. It's in the Old Testament. We're looking at four chapters, one chapter each Sunday for four Sundays. As you turn there, I want to uh, announce that next Sunday I'm uh, excited to have uh, some baptisms uh, up in here. We've got two people that we're going to be baptizing, so uh, be praying for them as uh, they trouble the waters of baptism. And also, uh, Mike Roach will be preaching next Sunday uh, as uh, Mike is uh, nominated to serve us as an elder. Um, I want to ask you to keep Mike in mind, keep him in prayer as we, uh, together as a church, evaluate him. Uh, and that's not the reason he's preaching. He just so happens to be preaching, so don't come ready to give him a grade. Um, uh, however, we are in the process of examining, examining Mike to serve us as an elder. Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll pray and ask God to help us as we meet together in Ruth 2. It says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, who, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she sent out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. And Boaz, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man, uh, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in any other field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink with the young men what the young men have drawn. Verse 10, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed to his young men, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her. 
Leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, a man's name was, uh, 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 with whom I worked today, is, is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, blessed, he, uh, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Father, we ask that as we come into this passage, that you would help us uh, to, to have eyes to, to see, ears to hear, a heart that would be open to your word. I pray that you would help me as I communicate, that I would communicate your truth and not mine. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to preach to you this morning on this passage under the title, Ordinary Faithfulness Before an Extraordinary God. Ordinary faithfulness before an extraordinary God. In verse 1, you'll see here in the book of Ruth, chapter 2, a new man is uh, introduced, a new character. His name is Boaz, and he is called here a worthy man. Worthy uh, is a word in the Hebrew that would reference the fact that he is capable, the fact that he is influential, and the fact that he is wealthy. Boaz is a man of fullness. In some ways, we are contrasting chapter 1, Naomi's emptiness, with chapter 2, Boaz's fullness. It says here that he's a relative of Naomi's husband. He's a kin. He is of the clan of Elimelech. If you might remember, Naomi is of the clan of Elimelech. Now, this is a massive development in the story, but you have to know something about ancient Jewish culture to understand the development here. In the ancient Jewish world, there were clans. Clans consisted of multiple families within tribes, and clans shared a common ancestor. According to Leviticus chapter 25, if an Israelite fell into slavery or into debt or into some other kind of hardship, Someone who was the nearest of kinsmen within their clan was required to be a kinsman redeemer. They were called to buy that person out of slavery to pay off their debt or otherwise relieve the burden that they have found themselves under. And so this verse 1 just kind of sets the stage for something new that God is about to do in the life of Naomi and Ruth. If you remember, Ruth and Naomi's story has so far been one of hardship. 
it has been real difficult. They are broke. They are broke as broke is broke. They are at the bottom of the barrel. I wonder if you know what it's like to be at the bottom of the barrel. I wonder if you know what it's like to feel uh, empty in life. Brokenness, financial brokenness, emotional brokenness, spiritual brokenness, relational brokenness. When we find ourselves at the bottom of the barrel, most people are tempted to do one of two things. One, they are tempted to a sinful scramble. Or two, they are tempted to a sinful slothfulness. What I mean is, is that some people scramble. Some people just take matters into their own hands as if there is no God. And they just do everything they can, including breaking the law, cheating, and stealing in order to make matters right in their own life. They take matters into their own hands. But others, in their despair, are tempted, tempted towards slothfulness. Almost the opposite. A giving up. I quit. I shut down, getting high, looking at porn, quitting my job, slothfulness. Why? Well, for both, whether it's a sinful scramble or a sinful slothfulness, at the, at the, at the bottom of this is a, uh, a despair that has come out of our emptiness, a despair that has come out of our brokenness. What we see here in chapter 2 are remarkable examples of ordinary faithfulness in the midst of brokenness at the bottom of the barrel. Now, notice I say ordinary faithfulness. I didn't say extraordinary faithfulness. Like, we love hearing stories of extraordinary faithfulness that only a few percent of the world's population can do. We love hearing stories of the person who was able to give millions of dollars away or the person who literally gave their life away in uh, some freak moment of saving another life. Extraordinary examples certainly do exist. But the problem is this, is I think so many of us think of faithfulness only in terms of the extraordinary. And if I don't have the opportunity to do the extraordinary, then I really don't have the opportunity to do anything with my life. What I'm saying this is this, church, 99.9999% of the time, God calls us not to the extraordinary, but to ordinary, everyday, regular faithfulness. And I want you to see that that is where it's at. That is the Christian life. And I want to show you in this text how God uses ordinary faithfulness to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. First, what we see here in the text is that God uses Ruth's initiative. Again, ordinary faithfulness. And what we see in Ruth is that she has initiative. Naomi, on the other hand, is depressed. Naomi is just kind of sitting back and she doesn't have any ideas. I don't know what to do. But Ruth has initiative. She's going to put her faith into action. You see, some people have faith, 
But the, the mentality of faith is sort of like this. God's got me, so therefore I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to just sit back and do absolutely nothing. Like the football team who was ranked number one and was going to play a game against the team that was ranked number 20, and they said, we only have to play this game because we are ranked number one. Well, how's that going to uh, uh, help their ranking if they don't play the game? The point is, is that even if you're ranked number one, you still got to play the game. So yes, God is on our side, but God doesn't bless us just taking the sideline in life and saying, I'm just going to sit back on my hands and do nothing. God doesn't bless that. But what we see in Ruth is faith. But it's faith in action. She's moving. She's doing something. I was sharing the gospel one time with, with this one, one dude, and uh, I was explaining this concept of faith to him, and he kept telling me, I can't have faith, I can't have faith. And I was like, bro, you, under, you understand the cross, you understand all of these doctrinal points ab about Jesus, why can't you put your faith in that? And he was like, well, I just, I just don't think that I can sit back and do nothing and money's going to drop into my lap. And I was like, what? Where did that come from? Like, I don't, I don't believe that either. But the problem is this, is when he heard the word faith, that's what he was thinking. When he heard the word faith, what he thought I was saying was, don't try to do anything about your uh, existence in this world, but just sit back and watch God work for you, right? Well, that's a misunderstanding of faith. That's a perversion of faith. What we see uh, uh, in biblical faith here is really exampled by Ruth who moves. She's got initiative. Look at verse 2. I'm talking too much. I need to take you to the text. It says, uh, uh, verse 2, Ruth the Mo Moabite said to Naomi, Here's the initiative. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after them, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, Ruth first has initiative, but secondly, she has courage, and God uses that as well. God uses Ruth's courage. Where do I see courage? Well, in verse 2, it says, Ruth was a Moabite, right? Well, why, why do all of a sudden are we hearing about her being a Moabite? We don't really hear about the fact that she's a Moabite until she gets to Bethlehem. And now that she's in Bethlehem, we're going to see her called the Moabite and a foreigner over and over and over. Why does it matter? Why is the author pointing out uh, over and over the fact that Ruth is a Moabite? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says that no Moabite will ever be allowed in the assembly of God. Now listen, Ruth is no longer a Moabite religiously. Ruth, by faith, has become part of the people of God. Salvation by faith through grace. And so she certainly has a right to be in the assembly. However, ethnically, Ruth remains a Moabite. And so there's this question of prejudice. There's this question of racial bigotry. Will she even be allowed in the fields? Will she be taken advantage of as a foreigner? Will people uh, harm her, assault her? And you've got to remember, church, too, this is during the time of the judges. 
You've got to remember the setting here. This is the chaotic time of Israel. This is the time when there was no king ruling the land. This is the time when everybody did what was right in their own sight. And so Ruth has real risk. And Ruth takes the risk. And also, church, that is faith. Faith is initiative. And uh, faith in action is also stepping out even if at times there is risk. And often there are many risks. We also see courage in the way that she's going to go about this. She says that she's going to ask permission. She's going to go glean in the field of those who she finds favor. So she's going to ask permission. Well, that's courage as well as a Moabite woman. What is behind ordinary faithfulness? I'll tell you what's behind it. What's behind our incentive, our motivation to live ordinary faithfulness before God is this truth that God is at work. Say this with me. God is at work. If we can understand that doctrinal truth, then we can live with joy no matter what's going on around us, no matter how far uh, to the bottom of the barrel we get, no matter how empty our life is, if God is at work, then I can continue on in ordinary faithfulness. Look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says, So she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, everybody say happened, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. That word happened right there is a word that's used throughout the Bible for an event that takes place that seems kind of random, that seems uh, that it happens by chance yet is actually part of God's divine, providential plan. So for example, in Genesis, there's the story of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph? He's sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Joseph ends up being a victim of injustice on the left and on the right. All around him, he ends up in prison finally by God's sovereign working all through the story. Joseph is brought up out of prison. He ends up being in charge of all of the food storage for Egypt. There's a famine everywhere else. Because of Joseph, there's a lot of food in Egypt. And then the Bible says, and it so happened that his brothers came to Egypt. Was it by chance? Was it luck? No. Uh, the point is this, is every random occurrence is never chance. It's never luck. Oh, and it so happened that you talked to the person who led you to Jesus. It just so happened that Charles Spurgeon walked into that church when he was 15 on a snowy day and heard the gospel. It just so happened that Martin Luther King was in the same town with Rosa Parks when she took a back, uh, was forced to take, or when she refused, I should say, to take a back seat on the bus. My point is this, is nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens by luck. 
Every random occurrence in your life, every step that you take, the fact that you walked into this building today is all part of God's sovereign providential plan for your life. Church, the, the, the star of the show is not Boaz. The star of the show is not even Ruth. But there is this star of the show that's kind of working behind the scenes. The one who you don't really see in the story, but he's there every single step of the way. You just so happened to make that phone call, but God had been moving every single one of your steps. You just so happened to talk to that individual, but God had been behind each step of the way. You just, you just so happened to put your seatbelt on that, that time, and, and God had been moving every step of the way, and Ruth here just so happened to step onto the field of Boaz. God has been moving the entire time. But for Ruth, it feels what? It feels very ordinary. She's just taking the opportunity that is right in front of her. She's trying to be faithful with this moment. And in her faithfulness, it leads her to the very place that God wants her to be. I think some people believe that God leaves His providential plan up to us to figure out and play out. Some people might be like I was when I was a, a young uh, believer, uh, just growing in my understanding of God, and I remember wrestling with what is God's will, and I would stress about it, and I was trying to figure it out, and I was I would literally be like asking God, like, just write it on the wall for me. Just put it in the clouds. You know, just give me a sign. Give me a dream. Give me something to show what I should do. And I was even taught that you have to find out what the center of God's will is and then stay right there. And I lived with great anxiety as a result. Because if I make the wrong decision, then I might be forever outside of God's will. Well, I don't see Ruth freaking out about this. I don't see Ruth at any point in the story trying to figure out God's providential plan. Never does Ruth sit back and say, what is God trying to do right now? What does Ruth do? She's just faithful with all of the ordinary moments. Anything else, anytime we try to figure out exactly uh, what it is that God wants us to do, how to figure out God's providential plan for our life, it always ends up weird. Like the lady who uh, was, was trying to determine God's will as to whether or not she should go on a vacation uh, to, to Israel. And uh, she woke up, as she was thinking about this, she woke up at exactly 7.47 a.m. And she thought, oh, that's the sign because the plane that I would take to get to Israel is a 7.47. Oh, that's goofy. 
That's goofy. Look, in the, uh, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it says the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is, is to be added whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. What's that saying? As it relates to understanding God's will, what it's saying is this, is, is that God is not going to write in the sky what he wants you to do. He's not going to give you some kind of freaky sign. He's not going to uh, uh, write it with the clouds in the air, but rather the will of God is to be found in the Word of God. Meaning God's will is not discovered outside of his word looking for so-called extraordinary signs. But rather, God's will for your life is to be found in his word, which is called ordinary faithfulness. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. You got dudes out here who are trying to figure out God's will and they're not even being faithful to the simple obedience to Jesus Christ that he calls for in his word. But church, I hope, I hope this is a sigh of relief for many of you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I hope this is like freedom from a lot of stress that you've been facing in life. I mean, if there's any application point at this moment, it's just simply this. Stop stressing. Stop freaking out about it. Stop stressing over whether or not you are in the right place. In the right season, in, in the right city, in the right marriage, in the right friendship. Stop stressing about that stuff. Like for all practical purposes, it looks as if Ruth is the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time in history. But because God is an extraordinary God, who's got a phenomenal plan for Ruth's life, Ruth is the right person in the right place at the right time of history. Oh yeah, so, so she so happened onto the field of Boaz. And the author tells us that Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech. The author keeps emphasizing this. Why? As if we forgot this whole kinsman thing. The kinsman redeemer. What we see here is that there is a glimmer of hope that's appearing now in this story. So let us turn our attention to Boaz. Going from Ruth to Boaz, we see also Boaz as a man of ordinary faithfulness before God. Boaz believes that God is behind the ordinary. Look at verse 4. When Boaz appears onto the stage, he's, his first line is this. He says, the Lord be with you. Now the original, or the common rather, Jewish greeting was peace to you. But Boaz says, as he greets his laborers in the field, he says, the Lord be with you. Now remember, this is harvest season. This is a man who owns uh, a bunch of fields, and he's got hired workers in the fields. Boaz believes 
that the Lord is with his workers even in the harvesting. Through the mundane tasks of bringing in the barley harvest, Boaz believes that God is providentially behind even that. As he greets his men with this word of godliness, may the Lord be with you. In verse 5, Boaz sees the young woman named Ruth, and he asks this question, whose woman is this? I think what he's asking there is, I don't recognize her. Who does she work for? She's not one of my employees. She's not one of my servants. Where did she come from? The answer comes in verse 6, again emphasizing that this young girl is a Moabite woman. In verse 7, we see that she has been persistent. She's been asking his workers, let me glean. Can I glean here? Can I gather among the sheaves? It says she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, uh, except for a short rest, meaning she has been asking for permission nonstop. She took one little brief break. Now, finally, the owner of the land is here. Will he allow this young woman to glean in his fields, or will he prove to be a racial bigot? Will he prove to say, now, no foreigners in my land? No Moabites in my land. Well, what we see here is that God uses Boaz's generosity. His ordinary faithfulness. His generosity. Going on in verse 8, we see Boaz now address Ruth. Listen, my daughter. He says, do not glean in any other field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what, what, uh, what the young men have drawn. This is, this is radical generosity. He's saying, not only can you reap or uh, glean in my fields, but I actually want you to stay in my fields because it's dangerous out there. And I've got a good eye on my men. And I've already told them, do not touch this woman. This is a place of safety for you. This is a place of protection for you. And even the water, which would have been a hot commodity back then. He says, even the water is going to be provided for you. When you need a drink, just go to the water that my guys have. Now there's this question that arises, why? Boaz, are you being so generous? And that's the question in verse 10 that, that Ruth asks of Boaz. The answer comes in verse 11. Boaz says, it's because I've heard of everything you've done. I heard about what you did for Naomi. I heard about, you, about how you cared for, for Naomi after your husband died. And then in verse 12, look at this. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. May a full reward be given you by the, the Lord, the God of Israel. Now check this out. She's asking, why are you being such a blessing to me? And Boaz's answer is this, is because of the stories I've heard of you, I am praying that God would bless you. But he doesn't stop there. Boaz says, I have the ability to be the blessing, and so that's why I am blessing you. 
Meaning Boaz is saying, look, I am praying that God would repay you for your kindness, and I have the ability to repay you, and that's why I am being so generous. Does that make sense? Meaning, look, church, don't just pray that God will bless the person who walks into this room that is clearly broken, that is clearly down, that is lonely, that is a foreigner, that is a stranger. And you see them and you say, God, uh, they, they have needs. I pray that you would bless them. And don't walk away without asking the question, can I be that blessing? You see, the point is this, is that God uses ordinary people to fulfill his extraordinary plans. God doesn't just drop down a bunch of barley on his own, but he moves through a man who recognizes that this woman needs help, that she is somebody who God wants to bless, and he says, I am that channel of blessing for this woman. Are you tracking with me? And so he then blesses Ruth. Now this is a little side note here, but it's really worth mentioning. Look at how he blesses Ruth. He doesn't give her a handout, but he gives her a job. Just, just, just pause with me for a second. He blesses Ruth through giving her a job, through giving her the ability to work. According to the Old Testament, uh, the, the, there was a law in Deuteronomy, which said that Israelite farmers are not allowed to harvest the corners of their land. And so built into the law of God is generosity. And so here what we see is Boaz, being a man of uh, godliness, recognizes that first of all he is called by God's law to be generous, and that generosity is seen in giving Ruth the ability to work. Not a handout. Now, some people are going to be like, amen to that. But i got to go on. What we also see is this. He goes over the top, extra, as much as he can possibly do, to make sure that she has everything within her ability to provide. So in verses 15 and 16, he tells his men, he says, look, let her glean in between the sheaves. Typically in that day, it was the law that, that uh, gleaners could come and they could glean after the barley sheaves had already been picked up and you can pick up whatever's behind. But he's saying, go ahead and let her glean while the barley sheaves are still there. That's more than minimum wage. And not only that, but he says, pull out some sheaves and just let her take them in her gleaning. He also provides protection for her. My point is this, church. When you are a recipient of generosity, you want to be a generous person. For Boaz, he knows the generosity that he's received from God. And he here is a generous individual, generously providing not just a job, but all of the necessary means for Ruth to work that job and to bring home what she needs. And also for Ruth, we see her generosity being received and then returned. Look at verse 14. 
Ruth is invited to lunch with Boaz. She's no longer on the outside, but now she's part of the inner circle. And in verse uh, 14, as they eat, she sat beside the reapers. He passed to her the roasted grain, that's bread. And it says she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. Well, there's a little question mark there. The author, he kind of always leaves us hanging and he answers our questions later. Why did he mention that she had some left over? Well, what, what we're going to see later is that she brought the rest of her bread home to Naomi. When you've received generosity, you want to be a generous individual. Are you tracking with me here? I remember years ago, I took a friend of mine out, out, out to uh, lunch. We went, went down to On the Hill Cafe right over here, and uh, he was going through a really tough time. That he had no food in his house. Um, he had no money. And so I thought, I'm, I'm going to take him out for lunch and uh, bought him a, a hamburger, and um, he ate half the hamburger. And while we're talking, I'm just looking at that other half, and I'm thinking, like, this dude's hungry. Why is he not finishing his hamburger? And then as we were fa- uh, wrapping up, he asked for a box, and he said, I'm going to take this home to my wife. And I was like, bro, let me just buy her. You finish that, I'll buy her a hamburger. But my point is this. When you receive generosity, you want to be generous to others. This is what's happening with, uh, with Ruth. She eats her lunch, and she knows that Naomi's at home hungry. And as soon as she's satisfied, she says, that's enough. I'm not going to stuff myself. I'm not going to be greedy here. I'm going to set aside what I have left so that I can, fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, so I can honor my mother and bring home some food to Naomi. We see generosity just all through here. Ordinary faithfulness. God uses generosity. Fourth, God uses Ruth's labor. Ruth works her butt off. I wish I could say that that's a Hebrew term, but that's just my term. Verse 17, she she works as hard as she can possibly work. And it says that in verse 17 that she beat out uh, the the, uh, barley, the, the grain that she had collected. This was difficult labor. You understand this? Like, uh, working in the fields was one of the most difficult jobs you could do. And then at, at the end of the day, to take all that you have uh, gleaned, all that you have harvested, and then to go to the threshing floor and to beat out the grain out of that barley, to put it into baskets, to take it home, she's working late into the night. And I want you to see her work ethic here. She doesn't ask for Naomi to come help her. She doesn't seem to ask anybody uh, for help. She just keeps on going. And what it says is, is that she ended up with an ephah of barley. That's 29 pounds of barley. Let me put that into context. The average man would, uh, would, would gain about a pound to two pounds of barley uh, a day. What she did was in one day, she brought home a month's worth of barley. application point. Are you bitter with your job? Are you unhappy with the work that God has given you? You see, when we recognize 
that an extraordinary God is always at work, then even the mundane, difficult tasks that we have with our own jobs are things that have been appointed to us. Like I said, harvesting was one of the most difficult jobs in the ancient world. Out in the sun all day. A lot of bending down, standing up, carrying. But, but Ruth just keeps on going because she understands that this is a moment that is, has been appointed to her by God. At your job, are, are you a complainer or a praiser? Do you receive the appointed uh, moment of your work with gratitude or with grievance? Is your job a divine opportunity or a demeaning mistake? Look, for the Christian, there is nothing too low for us as long as we can, in that moment, earn an honest dollar and use that moment for the glory of God. And this is the, this is the faithfulness that we see in Ruth. And God blesses her labor. She comes home. And when she comes home, she's got a whole lot of good gifts for Naomi. In verses 18 through 22, we see her return home. And the conversation turns from how did you do this to who helped you? As she, come home, she, as she comes home, she brings home a month's worth of barley. She even pulls out that cooked bread. Now, Naomi didn't expect some cooked bread. This is like uh, coming home with a half a hamburger and a month's worth of ground beef. God blesses her labor. The conversation goes from where did you work to who was it that allowed you to work like this? Let me close with three points from their conversation. Number one, God has not forsaken the living or the dead. Verse 20. No matter what's going on in Naomi and Ruth's life, no matter how forsaken Naomi may feel they are, what she's saying now is this, is that God has not forsaken us. Number two, there is a Redeemer. Also found in verse 20. All of a sudden, the lights turn on for Naomi. And she says, oh, I know who Boaz is. She's a kinsman of ours. She, he is one of our possible redeemers. And number three, stay in the field. Naomi tells Ruth, don't leave the field. Stay right there. Uh, you're going to be assaulted anywhere else. Stay in the safety of his field. Verse 22. Now as chapter 2 ends, the author leaves us hanging. It, it, the author leaves us with question marks. As as chapter 2 ends, it says that the, the harvest season came to an end. She worked out the rest of her days. And the, the end of chapter 2 sort of begins the way it started. I'm sorry, it ends the way it started. And that is with question marks. What's next? It seems as if this moment is over. It seems as if they have maybe lost contact with Boaz at this, at this moment. And it says that she lived with her mother-in-law. Ruth lived with Naomi, which means that they just kind of are existing together. 
It's sort of a fitting end, actually, for our story this morning. And that is because of this. Listen, so much of our life involves going from one question mark to the next question mark. We get a glimmer of hope. We see God move in ever so small ways. And then we find ourselves back at another question mark. Here, Naomi and Ruth are back at another question mark. So God provided for us this month, but what about next month? God provided for us this harvest season, but what about next? God's provided for us this year, but we don't know about next year. Moving from one question mark to the next question mark. Church, there are some people who are in a perpetual state of worry. And they can never have enough. They, the, the, what God has provided for this moment is never enough because you know that there is another question mark right around the corner. Well, this morning we sang this song, We've Come This Far by Faith, right? Leaning on the Lord. We did not sing, We've Come This Far by Our Own Initiative, Leaning on the Generosity of Others. We did not sing the song, We've Come This Far by Faith, but we don't know about the next season. No, church, we sang, we've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord. And if faith has brought us this far, our faith in this extraordinary God will take us through every single question mark that we might face in life. Why? That is because there is a better Redeemer. There is a Redeemer, and His name is Jesus Christ. He is the hero of the story. Jesus Christ is a better redeemer because he doesn't just simply redeem us from the temporal, physical question marks of this life, but rather Jesus redeems us from that eternal question mark of our souls. He pays more than anybody else is willing to pay and able to pay. Jesus Christ comes and he pays with his own blood. He dies in our place. And then three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead and he demolishes that eternal question mark. There is no doubt that we are fine in the safe place of our Redeemer. Number one, God has not forsaken you. Number two, there is a Redeemer. And number three, he is the safe place. He is the, stay in his field. His field is the place of abundance. And we can trust Him with the bigger picture, with all of the question marks that we face in life. Amen? Amen. It's, it's like my girls when they were little. I remember doing a puzzle with them. And I would hand them one piece of the puzzle at a time. I wouldn't take the whole puzzle and just drop it in front of them and say, okay, go ahead and figure the puzzle out. They didn't have the ability to do so. So I, the Father, would just simply hand them one piece of the puzzle at a time. And they would look at it, and then I would guide their arm to the correct place for that puzzle piece to go. 
And over time, as they put in one piece after another, they would step back and they would see that the puzzle's coming together and they would be kind of proud of themselves. Well, church, don't you understand that your father does not just drop the puzzle of his providential plan into your lap and say, okay, go ahead and figure it out. It's up to you. Figure it out. No, church, he just gives you one piece at a time. And he says, I want you to be faithful with this peace. And he guides us to the very place that peace ought to go. And it's not until you get a little older, you've been walking with Jesus a little bit longer, and that you're able to step back and see that this beautiful picture of your life has been coming together. And, and all the while, you felt like it was you. But it was never you, because nothing's ever by chance. God has been moving the entire time. And when you understand this church, you don't take pride in what you've done, but you're proud about what your father's done. You don't brag about what you've done, but you brag about what your father's done. So if I could summarize this, this whole chapter, this whole message in one phrase, it would be this old cliche, and, and I don't know if anybody here grew up in church like I did. Maybe you know this cliche. It goes something like this. God is good. All the time? Say it with me. God is good? All the time? God is good. God is good. Look, when things are up, God is good. And when things are down, God is still good. Amen? When life is full, God is good. And when life is empty, God is still good. When the sun rises, God is good. And when the sun sets, God is is still good. He remains good. And so therefore, we serve an extraordinary God. Let us be faithful in the ordinary moments of life with every piece of life that he's given us. Every day, ordinary faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are good all the time. We pray, God, that you would help us as we walk through the ups and the downs of life, the mountains and the valleys of life, that we might trust your goodness and be faithful in the ordinary ways that you have called us. Even now, we pray that we would be faithful until the end of our days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.